I tell you what, maybe maybe old Phil is going to be right. Uh, we we will just see. What do you think, Howard? Uh, Phil did not see a shadow this morning, so uh, think spring's going to come early. Well, I just heard that too. I uh, hope so. That'll be that'll be kind of nice. We're foggy here too. It looks like a London out the window here. It's uh, it's been an interesting stretch of weather. I've I've seen uh, a lot of dry air the past week. We uh, went out uh, Sunday after I finished my show. We went out to a gift show in Las Vegas for a week. Just got back last night, and I tell you, you talk about a spectacle out there. It's certainly not one of my favorite places, but it was interesting. It was interesting. Well, there's some fun stuff there. Uh, not just the strip and that that kind of stuff, but going over to Hoover Dam and uh, going to the uh, uh, the museums that are out there and some of that kind of stuff. There's a little bit for everybody. There is, and and we we actually went to Hoover Dam first time we've done that. But something that I learned that I did not realize uh, is that the city of Las Vegas. I mean, you look at the, all the water around the Bellagio and some of the some of the things there on the Strip. But was talking to somebody with the uh, Park Service. They said that the city of Las Vegas is basically water neutral. They put virtually exactly the same amount of water back into Lake Mead as they drain out. They have gotten so efficient at uh, their gray water capture and um, and just, you know, basically water catchment. And uh, he was showing us the map where it all goes back and runs back in by gravity flow and said that Las Vegas, for all the water you see over there and all the, you know, that you probably think they're being so wasteful of water, they're pretty much net neutral as far as uh, putting back as much water as they take out, which surprised me. Yeah, it surprises me, too. That's really interesting. There was an article in the Dallas Morning News just this past week about the fact that the water level there was way down. And I don't know if you noticed it or not, but when you were there, but the the, uh, level... Uh, it, it's down. It leaves the uh, rock shore, the mm-hmm. sides, pure white almost. Yep. It's very dramatic. It so was that surprises me a little bit. That's great if that's true. Yeah. Well, and it was. Uh, it surprised me a little bit. We had a most talkative, uh, but interesting person. We, you know, took a little fifteen-minute tour, and she was saying that uh, that all of that. Um, all the white that you see, that was actually from the flood of 1987, that it was not from the early days of the lake, and said that they planned, said that the lake's, the lake's down 140 feet, but they say that it, if it refills by about 50 feet, that's the level that they would like to keep it, uh, They that they... You know, the whole purpose, well, I'm sure it wasn't the only purpose, but one of the main purposes was downstream flood control and that uh, they don't ever want the lake full. They say they want it down at least 50 feet to be able to catch as much water if they ever do have another uh, spring like 1987, which which I found interesting, you know. Um, you know, it was just a, it was just a very interesting thing to do and, and fun to learn. And you hope that the people wearing the uniform, the employees of the park service and the, uh, Bureau of Reclamation, I tell you what, they, they work at protecting that dam. We, (laughs) when you drive in, if you want to go down near the dam itself, they, you go through a checkpoint and they, they check your vehicle. They open the trunk. They make you open the doors if the windows are dark. And then when you get down there, if you want to take a tour down into the hydroelectric plant, they give you as thorough a wand down and pat down as they do at the airports, which, uh, 
I think it's interesting. I, I guess it's a good thing, but I, I just really did not realize how big an issue security was out there. It's pretty interesting, uh, you know, the story about the fact that there's there's bodies in that dam, you know, during the building. You know, certain guys fell in there. I think the technology was uh, invented just to build that dam. They did things that they had never done with concrete before, and the, I think the hardest part was getting it, you know, pouring that thickness and, and mm-hmm. uh, that much. The, the uh, thing they had to figure out was how to get the concrete to set fast enough to keep, you know, the project uh, underway. And it's it was... A, it's a fascinating thing. It, it was, and uh, the heat, it you know, I, I, I guess everybody knows has ever poured concrete that it is hot. It gets hot as it dries. And they said that was one of their biggest deals was trying to chill the concrete as they poured it. They said if they had not chilled it and poured it in sections the way that they did, it would have taken like four years to cool off and would have caused all sorts of problems. And said they used ice and ice water. And uh, <laughs> it's funny, the, the lady that led our tour, and, and who knows, I, I'm, I don't take anything at 100% of what I'm told, but she said that there are actually zero bodies in the dam. That, oh, really? A large number of workers died and died in a lot of different ways, but there weren't any bodies buried in the concrete. Yeah, in the concrete. <laughs> so, anyway, news, huh? yeah, it was a fun thing. We also we visited uh, a number of nurseries in the Las Vegas area, and I have to say that they all had some organics on the shelf. They were not Good. pushing them, but they had some shelf talkers and some things out there. It was just overcoming the aroma of all the non-organic products. My God, I don't know how anybody works in those places, but uh, every nursery we went in had uh, had a fair amount of uh, organic fertilizers, uh, organic uh, certified organic compost, and uh, they had some interesting things. Uh, they had one that was a mixture, let's see, it was a mixture of rock powders, kelp, and worm castings. And um, I, they had some good things on the shelves, but, uh, you know, it it certainly was uh, not nearly as large as a Roundup display there. Well, uh, Espoma was probably uh, one of the organic lines you ran into, wouldn't it be? A little bit, but surprisingly not as much. Now, in Florida, we saw lots of Espoma because, of course, they started out as an East Coast company, but it was mostly brands that I was not familiar with, most of them coming out of California. Well, next time you're out there, I think maybe I mentioned it to you, maybe I didn't, but to try to take some time to go out and see the Carroll Shelby uh, Museum out at the racetrack. It's 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 not a big museum, but it's really worth going to see his first Cobra that's so famous is there, and you know the the souped up uh, Mustangs, and they actually make some of the uh, cars there. You can see some of that. Really, the way they turn them into thousand horsepower cars and all that sort of thing i'm not into cars all that <laughs> much but it was, it was pretty fascinating really he was a character to say the least apparently so yeah it's uh again we go out there to work but we always save a little time we'll try to make that part of our next visit i'm the same way i'm not i have never been that interested in motorcycles but uh roberta's husband of course and they've taken long motorcycle trips in the past but when we went to england a few years ago we we went to the Motorcycle Museum of the World in Birmingham, England. And that's one of the most interesting places I've ever been in. So you don't have to be a, a car nut to appreciate uh, the Shelbys uh, and, of course, 
Cobras are certainly world famous, but uh, we'll try to get that in on the next trip. Uh, yeah, it's worth it's worth doing once for for sure. <laughs> We've got well, they may uh, want to uh, next time they're in Dallas, may want to check out a little museum here too, over in the Arts District. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a uh, I was over shopping for media to paint on stuff one day, and uh, I. Uh, one of the places that uh, reproduces art that I'm uh, talking to about doing doing some of my stuff. Uh, right next door to it is a is a motorcycle museum, and it is it's really cool. I went in just briefly and talked mm-hmm. to, to the people. I want to go back and see it sometime, but uh, oh, they may fun. want to check that out when they're in Dallas sometime. I will. I will. She she's probably listening now, but I'll certainly certainly remind her a little later. I'll, What's and going a on? Good Mexican restaurant right next door. <laughs> <laughs> Just doesn't get much better, does it? A couple, a couple of good things, yeah. Well, how are things in Dallas as we move into a uh, little bit warmer weather? And uh, think it's going to be a good spring. Well, yeah, you know, you never know, but everything is uh, is looking good. This really warm weather, it's it's pretty fascinating to me, and I guess I've got it on my mind since I wrote that column about pruning and seeing the swelled buds but i'm seeing a lot of plants try to think it's a little uh, <laughs> earlier than it is you know i don't think you get if if they get too rambunctious too early i don't think you get a lot of permanent damage but it probably does do some uh, some negative uh, uh, work on the plants about how well they do in the spring and production gets going early well, when they have to start over, when they start to leaf out, and, uh, you know, I've, I guess boxwood is one of the things we see down here that always leaves too early, and we get that late frost, and you've just got two inches of new dead tissue, and I guess that's that much energy wasted, the fact that they have to start over, it's bound to take something out of them, but it's going to be interesting. We had so much damage with the early freeze, and I think it's all cosmetic, but to the viburnums, the Asiatic jasmine, to things that, you know, virtually never seem to suffer damage damage and they've still got two inches of dead growth all over them and i think they're going to come out fine but we're we're not seeing a lot of resprouting yet my uh buckeye my red buckeyes in front are just about to go into flower and the ones i grew from the seed that uh-huh. we got from east texas over there mine are in the greenhouse that doesn't get a, a whole lot of you know direct sun because of the trees and everything but they're up about 15 inches tall the ones that did germinate yeah the ones i planted too high i think i told you the ones that i countersunk have not started to grow yet and i don't know if they're going to it's really a, an interesting little uh lesson that i've learned there on uh, on those big seeds and i had a little bit the same experience uh two of mine are beautiful vigorous young plants other two are are just like yours and i think i did have them a little bit uh a little bit too shallow but they're um they're they're much larger leaved my native buckeyes are starting to uh put on foliage now but i would say the seeds you brought are probably almost 50%. The leaves on those seedlings are about 50% bigger. Now, whether it's being in good soil and getting regular fertilizer may have a little something to do with it, but really looking forward to seeing how these things grow out. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of a head-scratcher about whether they're going to be adaptable to our um, to our alkaline soil or not, you know, coming from East Texas over there in that sandy soil. But we'll, uh, we'll see. It's going to be good. But the lesson... On it may be that big, soft seed like that really uh, have to be planted more carefully than we thought or at a different depth. Like I said, 
the ones that I put on uh, down in the ground are the ones that are doing best, and the ones I countersunk are not doing well. Well, it's going to be fun to fun to watch and see. It's always fun to to grow something a little bit different, and um, um, I, it we'll just have to try them and see. I definitely plan to plant them out in the you know in my immediate landscape. Uh, of course, I've got a and you've seen them a uh, whole hillside of the native red buckeyes up there that just grow like weeds, but. Uh, like you say i don't know how don't know how they're going to adapt to the soil and uh adapt to a low water situation but we just we'll just watch and see it just makes it a whole lot of fun i definitely will use some mycorrhizal fungus when i plant them and um i'm going to let them get up probably to where they're at least 24 inches tall before i actually set them out yeah it's probably a good idea you know the other side of that story is that uh, sandy rose arbor's buddy mine and i go around treat trips checking things in the dallas fort worth area a couple times a year usually and one year we we were in fort worth in the area over there near uh, river oaks country club in that area of uh, of fort worth we found some big buckeyes and uh, one of them is at the uh, uh, botanical gardens over there hmm. the uh, fort worth botanical gardens and it's an ohio buckeye actually I think. really uh-huh. and then the others are the white uh, Buckeyes, we have a n- real nice stand of them in the Trinity River bottom down south of town, and and there were some in some yards over there. And all of those seed, all of those Buckeyes that I collected on that trip uh, there germinated, and every one of them are growing and doing really well. Interesting. So it's, uh, and the uh, Mexican Buckeyes kind of in the same category. Sometimes when I plant those, I get 100% germination, real even and quick and then other times i don't see uh i don't see much at all it's a funny thing it's a mexican buckeye i don't it may be the timing i think fresh seed is important on those and you would think that most native plants it would be a hard enough seed that they would last a long time but i think from the amount uh and and I was fixing my fence once again the other day where somebody had gone through it in a vehicle and uh, they had hit one of the big old Mexican buckeyes and it was just covered with the big seed pods. But when I opened them up, there was virtually no seed and there was no seed on the ground underneath. Apparently they are quite uh, popular as food for some of our rodents and things. I've never noticed that. I thought you were going to say they weren't viable, but they just weren't there at all. They just weren't there at all, and uh, I don't know whether it's raccoons or possums or whatever, but, uh, um, you know, again, I'd find, and, and it's funny that sometimes up on the hillsides, and uh, actually I had collected a whole bucket full of seed pods and seeds and was getting ready to plant them but i made the mistake of leaving them sitting out in a dry area for about three weeks when i went back to plant them there was not one seed in the bucket and not one seed in the seed pod so i'm not sure what got after them but something certainly did dine on them i bet it was mice or rats i've had a little rat issue on my car they went it doesn't look like they did any damage to my car to wires or anything but they they found some ginkgo fruit that I had in the out in the greenhouse uh, area, and they brought it in and dined on it right on the top of the engine in my car. <laughs> it was 
always something. It's always something. You know, it's it's interesting talking about the damage with them chewing on the wiring. Um, I was visiting with a mechanic, and he was saying that, and I can't remember whether it's Hyundai or uh, or the Hondas, one of the one of the cars uh, manufactured overseas or at least the parts were said they actually some of that wiring and the coating they put on the wire they use cornstarch in the process i've heard that before too that that could really be a problem because <laughs> those rats and mice can definitely detect that i'm sure oh yeah and dying on it and uh, makes for makes for many thousands of dollars worth of damage so uh oh let's see what else did i want to ask you about um you know, another thing that is really gratifying is uh, is how many growers are making more and more use of uh, mycorrhizae, and mm-hmm. yep. uh, we're we're seeing an a, just a, a explosion of different nursery products, things on the shelves uh, that have added both endo and ecto mycorrhizae, and I think it's probably Dr. Mike started it all out with finding a way of stabilizing that to where they can do it, but. Uh, I'm, I think so. Yeah, well, it, people that are that aren't doing it are just you know re- really missing out because the proof uh, uh, about the effectiveness of the stuff is just you know over overwhelming and you know it'll develop on its own with uh, an organic program. That's one reason why what we recommend works so well. Mm-hmm. But if you add the mycorrhizae in the beginning, inoculate the seed or the plant roots, or put it. You know, with plants when they're planted or whatever you do, it just speeds up the process so much. Yeah. Well, and I think it, it makes them more drought hardy and um, probably more disease resistant as well. Oh, and without question, yeah. There, you know, there are a handful of plants that don't seem to form mycorrhizal associations. Do you know if there are others that the mycorrhizae are more critical to their long-term success? Have you come across that in your research? Uh, sure, certain ones are. I think orchids are more than, than a lot of people realize, but the brassicas don't form mycorrhizae, and there's some other, amaranthus doesn't, which is the funniest one. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, all, uh, on the other hand, those plants still have some kind of very important microbiotic uh, life activity in the rhizosphere, it's just not not specifically the uh, mycorrhizae. But it's interesting that certain plants do not do not develop it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, the um, orchids were one of the original plants that they discovered. They had to inoculate the seed in order to get them to grow because is orchid right? seed. Yeah, orchid seed for the most part is absolutely tiny. An orchid seed pot on money. Many of the different genera can have hundreds of thousands, even up to several million seed. And so the seed is literally as fine as dust. And it would make sense that a seed which has almost no stored nutrient, uh, they call it the endosperm, has almost none of that in the seed, that a mycorrhizal association would be that much more important because that little seedling is going to survive. It's going to need a lot of help. And in nature, you know, the, the mycorrhizae are the things that help the little seeds grow, apparently. Oh, yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to uh, mention, uh, we've got this event coming up in uh, Belton. I hope right. uh, some people from your area or listening um, uh, audience can come. It's the Mother Earth News Fair. It's the first one of the year. And we're doing something really unusual, and we're not quite sure how we're doing it yet. And that is we're going to have a bunch of my art there. Uh, I think I'm going to have some uh, prints 
uh, that you know is inexpensive as possible, and we'll have uh, some of my original art there as well to show it off more than than anything. <laughs> I don't know that we'll sell a whole lot of it, but I wanted people to see what I'm what I'm up to and all that. The only problem we've got, and maybe somebody listening can help me out, we're going to have a corner at Belton. There's a part of the show is in the big rodeo arena kind of a place, and we've got a corner down there. We've got a pretty good, pretty good space. Mother Earth is uh, allowing us to have to set this stuff up, but I need some more easels, and I haven't found a good place to buy kind of you know reasonably uh, priced easels, not. The hard easels cost a fortune, yep. and we're just looking for easels that hold up science. So if anybody has any uh, ideas on some good sources there, we're still looking around for that. We're going to be in a place where there's railing on the side of the uh, arena, and I think mm-hmm. we'll be able to hang some of the stuff there. Do you have a relationship with a florist or any of the wholesale florist supplies, uh, suppliers there in Dallas, San Lorenzo, or any of those? You know, I used to know a guy that I hadn't talked to him in a long time. It had a place down on Ross Avenue that was in a cut flower business. Mm-hmm. That'd be the only one. Why do they deal with that a lot with uh, wreaths and for funerals? Yeah, and things for like that. for funeral sprays and things like that. That's and they're a good idea. It's that, that's a real good idea. They have a they have a little hook up on the top, and they're usually painted wire. And um, the other thing, the other place, and this sounds really you know kind of off the wall but uh some of the cemeteries there some of the uh funeral homes and things they collect uh as you you know have seen many times in a funeral service they there'll be a lot of flowers there after the time of the service and they go in and collect those metal stands and they sell them back to the florist for pennies on the dollar and that might be and, and again it's been so many years since i lived in dallas but a a call to Restland or one of those places. I bet you could well, actually, pick. Actually, uh, I know a guy who's a, a member at uh, the club, uh, Lakewood uh, Country Club, who is in that business. He uh, <laughs> owns a funeral home, so I'll give him a buzz. Well, ask them, and and if you have anybody among your Doug or anybody else that has a regular, you know, um, relationship with the florist you buy from, they would. I know my grandfather's flower shop would have happily loaned you a bunch of them as long as you brought them back when the show was over. So um, anyway, that hopefully uh, hope that'll help out there. And that starts uh, two weeks from today. And my notes right the sixteenth and seventeenth. Sixteenth and seventeenth. Yeah, it's uh, you can get some deals by buying early too if you want to go. You know. Uh, for the whole event or if you want to just buy one day i think the one day tickets are almost as much as the one for the whole show but uh doug and i are going to be there the whole time which we usually don't do i'm usually there uh try to get back and do do the show when on this belton thing but we're going to be doing the show from there and and there the whole time so i'd love to uh, visit with you if you have a chance to come by and i think it's worth mentioning again that all the proceeds from your art do go to support torque which is uh a very very good organization and uh, and totally yeah i guess i would make them totally uh, tax deductible um yeah it's a five you know legitimate 501c3 and and that's exactly right we uh the uh, the class actually has been selling better lately for some reason. We're not quite sure than uh, before. It's about to be on a completely different uh, platform. It's not going to look a whole lot different, but it's going to be uh, where we're going to be able to maybe do some additional ones, like do uh, one of the classes just on trees or do one just on 
the, the natural organic pest control like my talks or something like that. So we still have uh, quite a bit going on there. All my books will be there. Uh, you know, we won't be selling them because Mother Earth News has a big old mm-hmm. bookstore. And that's, uh, if listeners haven't ever been to Mother Earth, that's one of the, the uh, big uh, features of the show. They have a huge uh, book uh, store with their stuff and every author that's in any related thing across the country that you've ever thought of. So it's kind of fun just to browse through and see all that. And you'd be very happy for people to buy one of your books and bring it over and let you sign it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, they'll have the books, but it'll be in the store. And um, just one other thing I mentioned, maybe we can talk more about it next week when I've had a good chance to read the article, but uh, Acres, uh, the publication, has had some really good articles recently, and one I kind of got, uh, oh, I, I got the email notice about it before I received the magazine, but they've got a uh, big article in this one about restoring carbon to the soil and how important that is, and uh and I think it'll make real good reading for anybody looking to revitalize your soil there and hopefully be exactly the same types of things that you and I recommend every day. Yeah, sounds good. Now, I know we're out of time. Next week, I want to talk about sedges a little bit more. I'm seeing something interesting with mine. Some are almost totally evergreen, and some are, are uh, you know, completely brown and hay-looking. So let's chat about that next week. I'll put it down in my notes and... Uh, you guys have a great week in the meantime, and as always, uh, thanks for taking a little new Saturday morning with us. Thanks, Bob. Enjoy it. See you next week. Look forward to it. Thank you, Howard. Bye. Okay, Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, and as always, I will encourage you to consult DirtDoctor.com as the one website out on the Internet that, uh, well, I'm sure there are a few others, but it's probably the biggest that really has information that relates to the area that we live in and for the most part you know everything you read on dirtdoctor.com is going to be close to a hundred percent applicable here in the hill country in san antonio and in south texas so just be careful when you're doing your google searches and all there's just so much information out there that does not relate to our area but dirtdoctor.com uh, howard's website you're going to find a, just a tremendous amount of things that will help you guard, garden better in this area and i say good morning carol good morning good morning hey, so I'm- I'm wondering if it's too early to put out nematodes, if they will freeze or... Well, nematodes won't freeze. Um, you know, the question is always, what are you going to accomplish? It's, uh, I think it's way too early to be concerned about grub worms and things like that. But if you're fighting fleas, it's a very good time to do it. If you're wanting to control ticks or thrips... Uh, this is the only time of year that you can do that effectively because the, the ticks are down off the bushes and trees down at soil level where the nematodes can get to them. And in the case of the, uh, of the thrips insect, uh, the larval, the larvae are in the soil now where the nematodes can get to and destroy them. So it's, uh, it, it is the only time to control some things. It's a good time to control others, like the fleas, and some things you're just way too early on, uh, like um, you know, like the grub worms and things. So, um, does that give you some help? Yeah. So, I, basically, I want to do it for my garden. Yeah. To get ahead of all of the pests in my garden. So, when's the best time to do that? Well, actually, I think it's a fine time to do it 
with your garden, the main things that I think you're controlling are both the thrips insect and the click beetle larvae, which are so damaging to so many of our root crops. You will knock them out. You will knock out uh, a number of the overwintering stages of the grub worms. Sometimes it takes a long time for them to kill the bigger grubs, but at least it keeps them from turning into the beetles and, you know, flying around to lay more eggs. So, yeah, I... And and I'll probably be doing it this next week. Uh, I like to do a pre-planting, pre-warm weather planting uh, application, the nematodes, and then I'll do the same thing in the fall for my uh, fall garden. But they're so inexpensive, and most of us don't have huge gardens. I mean, it's just you just insurance for so many different things. It doesn't guarantee that you won't have to do other things, but it sure is. Uh, sure. I think it sure is a good thing to do. Can you use neem oil with nematodes? Neem oil is, you know, a totally different product, and I I would not blend them together. Neem oil is, uh, I'm afraid, might be toxic to them, but, um, I mean, you could put them out 20 minutes apart. You put out your uh, nematodes on wet soil, and they're down into the soil very quickly. Neem oil, of course, we're spraying directly on the plants, and so uh, they're just two different things. I wouldn't mix them together, but to put your nematodes on the ground and then put your neem oil on the plants immediately afterwards, that would not be a problem at all. Oh, great. Okay, well, thanks a lot. So I could do my nematodes now and then follow up a couple of months later and do it again? Or in- I tell you, I would do them now, and then I would be watching, uh, kind of like we do for damage to grass, Unless you see a pretty big flight of June bugs around the garden, uh, I doubt if you'll have to apply them again. For me, normally that one application is all I have to do in the spring, and I'll do it again in August or September. But uh, just if you start seeing a lot of June bugs, I make a second application. Otherwise, I don't think you really need to do anything. Awesome. Okay, thanks. Have a great weekend. You do the same, Carol. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Next up will be Elaine. Good morning, Elaine. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, roses, it's the 14th almost. Uh, do we cut them back even if they didn't freeze? Um, yes and no. Uh, if you have the modern hybrids, if you have grafted roses in the bushes, I think it's important to cut them back just to ensure the vigor of your plants. Your old-fashioned roses and really any roses that are cutting grown, which includes uh, the knockouts, the cutting back is optional. You'll make thicker plants. You can reduce the size, but cutting back on uh, on old-fashioned roses or own root roses, that's strictly optional. You don't have to cut them back. You don't gain anything by cutting them back, and I would definitely not cut back any of the climbing roses because the climbing roses, their primary bloom is on wood that grew last year. We prune our climbing roses this early. We're pretty much... Uh, not going to have many flowers this spring, so always wait on the climbers. Your bushes, it's up to you. If you want to prune them back, yes, this is the time to do it. But if they're growing on their own roots, it's optional. You certainly don't have to cut them back. Okay, and what about a passion flower? Mine didn't even freeze back. Would I go ahead <laughs> no. and cut those back? Or? Uh, only if they're out of hand. Um, if they're green, leave them alone. You'll just have earlier flowers and more flowers than ever, and the butterflies will love you for it. Yeah, the only thing I really lost was lantanas. And lantanas froze. In the early freeze. And yeah. They'll be fine. I'm yeah. Come back. Oh, they're going to come back just fine. I think 
you know, it's uh, it, I would definitely be fertilizing. Um, the other thing we have to watch, we're getting little drizzly rains. We're getting very few good soaking rains. So be careful that your soil's not drying out. You may need to do some deep watering, but uh, we're just kind of right on the cusp of doing a lot of different things. I think if you have ornamental grasses, this is the time you want to get them cut back before they really start to grow. So we're going to start pruning on a few things a little early. I will admit to I'm behind on things, and I've got you know peach trees starting to bloom that I have not gotten thinned yet, and so I've got to get out and uh, get those done in the in the very near future. So I, I think in general, our um, our pruning on many plants, we're going to be starting two or three weeks earlier than usual this year. Okay, and I have a lemon tree that has not bloomed for going on three years now. Anything I can, and it has bloomed in the past. Anything I can do to encourage it? Um, there would have, yeah, it would have been in the fall. But you know, the uh, lemons and other, well, in fact, a lot of different plants actually form what we call bud primordia back in October and November, and that's what determines whether you're going to have uh, flowers this spring or not. Now, your lemons didn't freeze back partially, did they? Uh, I lost maybe six leaves total. Okay. Then, no, it's. Uh, um, if they are not blooming, are they in full sun? Yes. Well, gosh, there's no reason they shouldn't bloom. I'd be looking. I'd be looking for blooms in the next month or so. Okay, good deal. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You do the same. It's always a pleasure. Well, getting back to uh, gardening. Anthony's going to be up first, and then Jeff. That'll probably finish up the remaining time. Martin Bob is over there in the uh, producer's room, so uh, home improvement will be coming up next. But right now, good morning, Anthony. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning. Hey, uh, I had a question about um, caring for a transplant that I did. Okay. Uh, it's a red oak. Uh, the diameter of the trunk was about like four or five inches. Pretty big tree. Uh uh, yeah, it, it was heavy to move. Uh, I, I put down some Garrett juice, uh, you know, after I did the transplant. You know, I'm mm-hmm. just looking, what what care should I be uh, looking for, you know, to, to be uh, given it? Well, the most the single most important thing that you can do, uh, I, I assume you expose a root flare, plant it at proper depth and all. But uh, yes, sir. remember that that tree, you've compromised its root systems. And root system, and remember that a tree like a red oak will absorb a great deal of material directly through the bark. And if I was going to tell you, and, and red oaks don't like a whole lot of water, you don't want the soil, you know, real dry around your new transplant. Uh, you don't ever want it to dry out completely, but you sure don't want it to be too wet. But if you would every day, uh, you know, even if you could do it ten times a day, would be that much better. Uh, and, of course, a day like this doesn't count where you've got so much fog and drizzle and everything. But if you just take your hose and go out and spray up and down the the uh, limbs, the trunk, everywhere that doesn't already have hard, thick bark on it, anywhere that you've got fairly smooth bark on there, that tree is going to absorb a great deal of moisture directly through the bark. Uh, you can add a little bit of garret juice to that if you would like, if you have a way to do that. But going out and, and just moistening the bark while that tree is trying to get its roots established, uh, that is, this, I think, the single most important thing in transplanting a tree. Okay. And and then uh, my next question, how often should I put down some dry molasses in my in my lawn? Oh, no more than a couple of times a year. I mean, it won't hurt to do more, but uh, as far as cost-benefit ratio, if you do it once in the spring, once in the fall, you'd be doing everything you need to. 
Okay, I'm just trying to get a foot up on the uh, on those ants coming in the yeah. spring. But. Well, okay. it's again, if you're fighting fire ants, uh, you could even do it as much as four times a year. But I make one spring treatment, then keep an eye out for the ants and reapply if you need to. Okay, thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, we finish up today with Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. How about yourself? Oh, no complaints today. A little allergy problem, as you can hear, but other than that, we're great. <laughs> Could be a lot worse, yes, sir. Yeah. Well, I, my question is about, um, you know, about applying a pre-emergence, you know, in our yard. That the front yard's not too bad, but the backyard all of a sudden it seemed to be erupting with weeds. So I wondered if it was too late to even do that or not. I'm afraid it probably is. What kind of grass do you have? Um. What is it here? We just moved to this house. Okay. St. Augustine, Bermuda, Zoysia? I think it's Bermuda grass mostly. And it is probably almost 100% browned out, isn't it? Yeah. There's there's a few spots where it's still green. Okay. But, yeah, there's a lot of brown still in it. Okay. Well, what you want to do while it's brown is make your mixture of vinegar and orange oil gallon of strong vinegar and two ounces of orange oil get out there and spray because you will not hurt your bermuda grass at all while it is brown and you'll kill a hundred percent of those little green weeds that are just sprouting up i mean the uh it'll be just almost instantaneous and that's going to be far far more effective and far safer than your pre-emergence will be uh natural pre-emergent of course is corn gluten meal is not harmful but when things have sprouted, it doesn't do any good at all. But uh, the nice thing about Bermudas and Zoysias is that they do normally totally brown out in the winter months, and that means this time of year, just spray with the vinegar and orange oil. You'll kill all those weeds before they get started. Okay. Uh, the other question I had was regard to orchid trees. Mm-hmm. I had a lady gave me four very small ones, and um, unintentionally we left them outside when it was freezing, and however they survived yeah do you know if they're the white ones or the purple ones i think they're purple okay that is um uh those will suffer a little freeze damage but they generally come right back out um we'll see how much bloom you get this spring but uh get them planted get them planted in an area with as much sun as possible and expect that they'll freeze back a little bit in the winter months but normally you get plenty of purple flowers early spring what about the white ones? Cause white ones, white ones don't even freeze back. They have a smaller flower, but they are totally, totally cold hardy.